I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to say right now that we are only going to get through verse 14, and that's okay. I'm going to say right now that the title for the message today is not what's in your bulletin, because what's in your bulletin is what we're going to cover next week. Um, The reason why is I needed to spend just a little bit more time, and please forgive me for doing this if you are sick and tired of dealing with verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2. But I wanted to try and synthesize all of these verses and all of the truths that we've studied in sanctification over the last two weeks, synthesize them together in a really uh, case, case study example. We're going to do that. And then we're going to look at, just this morning, the definitions of grumbling and complaining and what the opposite of grumbling and complaining is biblically or grumbling and disputing is biblically. Next week, you have a preview in your bulletin, and I invite you to look for the motivations for why we should not grumble and dispute. I believe something to that effect was the title that you had for the message this morning. Uh, What are the motivations for not grumbling and not complaining or disputing, not murmuring or arguing? I encourage you, there are three of them found in verses 15 through 18, and so you can prepare for next Sunday by looking at those uh, motivations found in verses 15 through 18. But for this morning, before we dive into verse 14, I want us to uh, remember where we've come from in verses 12 and 13. So Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, one last time, let's address how does this play itself out? What does it look like to work because God's working? Do we stop? Do we do nothing? Do we pray? What is the working that we do? And how do we work in such a way that we don't nullify his working? How do we work in such a way that we're not earning his favor by working? How do we work in such a way that it's not legalism to say, I need to work in order that God would work? And Uh, That's, by the way, what the Mormon church believes. Um, God's been teaching me a lot about Mormonism uh, recently. I've had, um, over the last two weeks, I've had two pairs of gentlemen come as missionaries from the Mormon church uh, to our house. And the first time we invited them in for dinner, we we had just sat down for dinner and we talked for about an hour and a half with them about the gospel. And then this was just yesterday. um, They came in for another, uh, about an hour and a half, a, a different pair came in and we shared the gospel with them. And I'm asking them questions. And the bottom line is, and they were so clear in what they were saying, so clear. And I kept asking to try and make sure, am I hearing this correctly? And I even went to Second um, Nephi chapter 25, verse 23, which I uh, quoted for you a couple weeks ago that says, uh, you work as hard as you can and God will give you grace after you've done all you can do. And so I asked them, what does that text mean to you? What does that text mean? What does this text mean? And they said, oh, you are saved only through the grace of God. Only through the grace of God. After you do your best in life. What is your best? What qualifies as your best? Is my best different than John's best? Is John's best different than Paul's? What about if today wasn't my best? (laughs) 
What if a second isn't my best during a second? Is that what's... It was so sad. It was so confusing. It was so depressing. Um, so scary to hear people that do not have the truth, that are going around trying to preach the truth, and have zero assurance, no assurance whatsoever. They have no hope. I said, how can you promise a man who's dying with two minutes to live, he's bleeding to death on the side of the road, and he pleads with you, how can I know without a shadow of a doubt I can go to heaven? And they said, we don't have the answer. We don't have the answer. I said, my Jesus has the answer. My Jesus said to a thief on the cross, unable to be baptized, unable to do anything. You admit you are a sinner deserving of the death that you are dying. You turn to Jesus as the innocent one. You have not done anything to deserve this. And please, there's no way I can get to heaven except for you. Please remember me in your kingdom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So how do these verses in verse 12 and 13, how are they not legalistic? How are they not earning God's favor? I want to take a test case, a a case study here. Probably nobody in this room struggles with anxiety or fearfulness. I do, so let's let's dive into that. We'll preach to my own soul. Let's say fearfulness or anxiety or a unsettledness of soul occurs in your life. How do we work out our salvation, literally our sanctification? How do we do that in a way that honors the Lord, that is working according to the power that He works in us, but that still works? A lot of people would tell you, the working is to pray. You, you realize fear, anxiety is rising up in you. You say, God, that's wrong. I don't want to be fearful and anxious. Please take this away from me. And then you just keep on watching the big game and... Keep on living your life. A lot of evangelicals would say that is the work. Work out your salvation. Pray. Ask the Lord. He's the one working. So you pray. God will take it away. I would say that you must pray. But I would say that that is not the entirety of the work. God has given you work to do. All the commands in the New Testament about agonizing, right? Agonizomai. Agonize. Labor. Toil. Strive to the point of exhaustion. It can't just be, God, please help me. I know this is wrong, and uh, please take the fear and the anxiety away. Amen? All right. Keep living the, the way you normally do. No. You work because he's working. So let's try and get a little bit of an order here, and let's try and work this out. Number one, when you are fearful and you recognize that as sin... God's already at work in you because you could not recognize that as sin and could not desire to remove that from your heart if it were not for God. So God's at work in you and God's at work in you to will right in the seat of your affections, in your desires, in your heart. God is at work in you and he's moving on your affections. And so when you realize I am anxious and God tells me to be anxious for nothing and I am struggling with fear and worry and anxiety and I don't want to do that because that's against God. God's at work already. And now reminded that God is at work, you say it's time to work. It's time to work. If you struggle with lust, you don't say, God, I am really struggling with lust right now, really tempted with thoughts right now, really struggling. Please take them away. And then at three in the morning in your office with a locked door, 
start surfing the web. No. You work because God is working. And if God is bringing in your heart, working to will in your heart, and you realize, I don't want to be fearful or anxious, now it's time to work. How do you work? Well, you work by, remember Ephesians chapter 4, renewing your mind. You work by preaching truth to your heart. You work by reminding yourself, I don't need to be anxious. Matthew 6 commands me not to be anxious, but why? I don't need to be anxious because my heavenly Father knows my needs. He takes care of me. And you start preaching truth to yourself and living based on the principles that you preach. And I really want to um, encourage you with a little packet. You can get this on biblicalstrategies.com. They make several uh, different themes uh, of these little booklets. They're booklets um, that you can read through. I read through this whole thing last night in one sitting. It's very easy to read through. It's very short. And it's so, this is biblical counseling. It's so biblical counseling. This one's called Safe in the Storm, Biblical Strategies for Overcoming Anxiety. And this empowers you to do the working. How does it do it? It comes with a little, uh, little sticky envelope thing here that holds two sets of cards. You can see there's green, there's red. And these cards all have on them verses. The red, stop, bad, not good, right? Green, go, yay. So red, bad. Red is the lie. The lie that you're believing. Again, this one is for anxiety or fearfulness or struggling with that. There are ones for uh, lust. There are ones for bitterness and anger. There's impatience and how to biblically counsel your soul. So please, again, I really encourage you biblicalstrategies.org, uh, bibl- or dot com, These are some of the best resources I have ever seen. And you can carry this little packet around with you. The lie that you are believing when you're afraid and you're struggling with anxiety, that God isn't enough, that you need more. It's a lie that I think we've all bought into. Uh-oh, um, thank you, God, for being the creator of the universe, but here you're failing me and I need something more. What's the truth? They give the lie here. What's the truth? Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26 is the truth. Whom have I in heaven but you? Beside you, nothing on earth that I desire is here besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's everything I need. He's everything I need. The lie, if God truly loved you, your life wouldn't be so hard. The truth, Romans 5, 3 through 4. Well, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So it's actually a good thing when God is testing you and putting you through trials, because he loves you and he wants you to have hope. The lie, just a third example. God doesn't really care about you. That's why you have to worry. God just takes care of the stars and the planets and the spinning of the earth and that stuff. But God doesn't care about you personally. 1 Peter 5, 7, no, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He loves you. So not only the bad, but the good, the promises that you believe. You promise, uh, or you believe the promise that God is working all things for my good. Where is that found? Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The promise that God loves you and enjoys acting on your behalf. Zephaniah 3:17 The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. My friends, this is such a helpful resource and you can just put this in your pocket and take this with you and memorize these verses and maybe when you're struggling, this is the work that you do. 
You do the work of God help me. I need to preach truth to myself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the most quoted quote of his is that we spend far too much time listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. We listen, oh, things aren't going well. Things are going so poorly and God must not love me. No, preach the truth. God loves you. He knows. He's ordaining. He's planning. He's purposing. Even as we studied in Family Bible Hour this morning, when he does one thing, he's doing a billion things and he's doing them for your good and for his glory. So you work. You work not only by preaching truth to yourself, and again, this is helpful one last time, biblicalstrategies.com. I I plead with you, we need that resource in our hands and in our hearts and in our minds because it's the Bible in biblical counseling um, cut up into the pieces that we need to memorize and preach truth to ourselves. Then what do we do? We live on that truth. We hang together in accountability. We hang in our fellowship groups and we say, I'm struggling with fear and here's where I struggle with it and here's why I struggle with it. And we pray for one another. We start memorizing verses together and we encourage each other. We, we hold each other accountable. How are you doing? How can I be praying for you? We call each other. We live in community together in such a way that we hold each other up before the throne of grace. And then we get everything out of our way that would cause us to stumble in that area. If it's lust, get everything out of the way. If it's bitterness or anger, stop dwelling on it. Stop remembering it. Stop bringing it up and get everything out of the way that would remind you of that. It's anxiety. Start dwelling on something else. We work. And once we work, when we work, while we work, we know that it is God who is doing that work in us. So if we look back and we see, I started to hate that sin. I started to fight against it. And I overcame it today. Then we look back and we say, it's only because God did that through me. But we cannot say, God, please help and then just sit back and do nothing. That's not working out your salvation. That's just lazy boy sanctification. And we don't believe in that. And the Bible does not preach that. So that's a little bit of a test case, a case study scenario. How does it look to play this out, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's working in you? And if you are working knowing that you already have the favor of God, if you're working knowing you are already saved, then it could never be legalism to do that. Because you're not working to earn salvation, you already have it. So you preach the gospel to yourself, and then you move forward with the understanding that God has required you to obey, but you're not obeying to earn his favor. You're obeying because he has graciously given you his favor. Divine sovereignty. If anybody ever says, oh, God's going to do it, so I don't have to do, do anything. I don't have to worry about it. Divine sovereignty activates our doing. So if anybody says, I don't have to do anything at all because God's doing it all, misses the entire point of these verses. And now into the verse that we're studying today, and this is the whole point of the next verse. If it's God does everything and you don't have to do anything in sanctification, then Paul would just be wasting ink. Paul would just be wasting his breath when he says in verse 14, do this, you do this. No, Paul says you work. God's the one working in you, but you work. And in essence, he gives us his own case study. You work. And let me give you this command. And start working on it. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. When the clock reads 7 o'clock, and your body says 6 o'clock, 
and your soul says midnight, (laughs) don't grumble, don't dispute. What do these two words mean? What does Paul mean? What does the Holy Spirit mean when he writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing? Well, first I want to step back. I want to take a big step back because we've spent a lot of time diving very deep into, and obviously we could go deeper, but we've been diving so deep into these two verses that we might miss the forest again. We might be missing the whole big picture. What's happening here? Paul's writing, and he's telling this church, stop fighting amongst yourselves. He's telling them, there's no theological issue that you need to change here. You just need to start believing the theology that you know is true, and you need to be unified. Stop fighting. Stop having these disagreements and these arguments. That's why he starts in Philippians chapter 2 by saying, don't do anything from selfishness or vain glory, empty conceit. Don't do that. He also says, don't worry that I'm in jail. Chapter 1, verse 27, don't worry. God will keep doing the work. And I believe chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 are really just in essence, Paul saying, don't worry. Even if I die, God's the one who's going to sanctify you. It's never me. It's never been me. But I think we can fit verse 14 into the theme of this book very well. I want to do it this way. Back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said that we cannot be, (coughs) excuse me, we cannot be those who are seeking to be praised, right? Vain glory, empty conceit. I don't want to be somebody that says, oh, please praise me. Please notice me. Please give me glory. Please seek to honor me and respect me. Please give me praise. Those people, and we struggle with that, But can I just say very frankly, um, if you have a bent towards, I just want to be praised by man. I just want people to notice me and see me and praise me. If that is a large part of your soul, um, I I think that disunity is on the way in our church. Uh, Disunity is definitely on the way in your relationships. If you are always expecting people to serve you, then you will make a mess of every relationship you're in. I mean, just play this out in your marriage. If I come home and I expect everything that is going to be done tonight is Hannah serving me. I expect to be served. I'm entitled to be served. Hannah, serve me. What am I going to do? I'm going to come in. I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to say, serve me. Here are my feet. I mean, this is like Beauty and the Beast with uh, Gaston and Belle. Here are my feet. Take off my boots. Do what I ask you to do. That'll last for a couple hours, maybe. (laughs) And then it's like, excuse me, you do something. Excuse me, what's happening here? When did it become this sense of entitlement? Think about it in the church setting. If I, as a a pastor here, say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm the pastor. I just teach, so I'm not here for setup. I'm not here for chair. I don't do those kind of things. If if Micah said that, if our brother Micah said that, um, he wouldn't be doing uh, the other job that he does for work. He is in janitorial work, and he happily serves. Nothing's, nothing's below me. That's the point of this text. Don't, don't ever say, I'm above that. And if you think that you are entitled to everyone around you serving you, you're going to make a mess of every relationship. Life's going to be very hard for you because you're going to be driving. This traffic is supposed to be serving me. It's not right now, so I'm going to get angry. Come on, guys. Don't you know that the king is rolling down the road here? This 
this speed limit's not serving me. Um, I understand the point of it, and I understand that I want to be safe, but I'll be safe because this speed limit's not serving me, so I'm going to keep on going. No. No. That's not humility. That will undo relationships. Instead, this is what we should be doing. We should be looking to meet the needs of others. That's what Paul is preaching. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Whenever we step in here, there are two things we should always be thinking. Number one, I need my needs met. But I don't want any of you to have to do that. I want God to do that. And that's what he loves to do, right? You remember Acts chapter 17, Paul says, God isn't somebody that needs to be served by human hands. We don't come in in here to serve God with our praise, like he needs our praise for some reason. What did Jesus do in Mark chapter 10? Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus loves to serve you in the church right now. So when we come, we're saying, God, I have needs. And God, I want those needs to be met, but those needs are not going to be met by other people, merely human people. They're going to be met by you and you alone. Now, you can be used of God to meet other people's needs, and that's the second thing. We should always come in here saying, God, please meet my needs through you and your son. And secondly, God, please let me meet other people's needs. I'm here to serve, so please let me meet other people's needs. And when you meet the other person's needs around you, you are meeting those needs through Jesus Christ. So you could be an answer to somebody's prayer when they walk in the door and they say, I need a need met. And I want God to meet it. I know he will take care of me. So I'm not going around going, oh, uh, just like those people, you know, are like black holes of neediness. Just walking around. Oh, every time. Hey, how are you doing? I just need I need this. God will provide. God will take care of you. We should come in the door looking for God to meet our needs and looking to meet the needs of others. Imagine a church that did that 100% of the time. Oh, what a blessing that would be. That's why verse 14, in context, that's the big picture pulling out. That's our introduction. In context, verse 14 is saying this. If you are looking to be praised by others and they're not praising you, you're going to grumble. If you're looking for others to meet every single need you have and some needs aren't being met, you're going to dispute. So don't grumble, don't complain, don't dispute. Do everything you do without complaining. Do everything you do without grumbling. Do everything you do without disputing. We'll see the the true biblical motivations for that next week. But for now, we need to ask Paul, what do you mean grumble? What do you mean dispute? What do those look like? How do I not live those out? What is the opposite? And how do I live in obedience to God's word? Let's take the first word. Do all things without grumbling. Grumbling. Let's define this word. First of all, you can see grumbling and disputing are never allowed in any circumstance whatsoever. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So nothing at all. It's kind of the same way that Paul said it earlier. Nothing, no, nothing at all with uh, selfish ambition or vainglory. Here he says nothing, no, nothing at all with grumbling or disputing. Do everything without that. Do all things without that. People often say, if you want to convict people, just uh, preach about prayer and preach about evangelism. And those are always convicting. Amen and amen. But especially on Daylight Savings Day, man, all you got to do is preach about grumbling and disputing because you are not allowed biblically. I am not allowed biblically to have any qualification, to have any asterisk next to it, except in this circumstance, except in this situation, No, everything you do must be done without grumbling or disputing. What is grumbling? What is grumbling? 
Grumbling is an awesome word in the Greek. Grumbling is, some of your Bibles might say murmuring. Do you have murmuring in your Bible? I actually quite like the uh, translation of murmuring. Um, There are two schools of thought in the way that they translate this Greek word. One is to keep it, uh, Paul's alluding to Old Testament words, and so they try to keep it. The Old Testament says this word for grumbling, and so they try to keep it in grumbling, and they keep it the word for word there, and I love that, and we're going to look at those passages. But murmuring, murmuring pulls out a nuance of the Greek word that we don't fully see with just the word grumbling. Murmur, um, you think, how do people come up with these words? Murmur? Uh, murmur is onomatopoetic. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that sounds like what it is. Sounds like whales talking to each other, you know, murmur. Um, you're just uh, frustrated, you're grumbling, you're complaining. That word, murmur, is an onomatopoetic word. Uh, that means talking uh, bad about something, struggling with something, and, and disputing against it. Um, same thing with the Greek word for grumbling. The Greek word for grumbling is gungusmus. Gungusmus. Just murmuring. Oh, gungusmus. Uh, you are not happy, and therefore you're muttering under your breath. You are very angry. So let me give you a definition for the Greek word Gungusmos. Gungusmos, or grumbling, is muttering in a low voice as a sign of displeasure. Sometimes it's only to yourself, and sometimes it's whispering it to others. Muttering in a low voice, that's where murmur, you're speaking, you're whispering, maybe it's intelligible, you can't, or it's unintelligible, you can't even hear it fully. I'm just struggling under your breath, very frustrated, very tense. It's muttering in a low voice as a sign of displeasure. Sometimes speaking only to yourself, sometimes whispering to others. And what Paul does in verse 14 and 15 is he alludes with the word grumbling and with the, with the phrase, uh, prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What he does there is he alludes to two Old Testament passages. Uh, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll see specifically what he's alluding to. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10, specifically verse 10, is the only other place in any Pauline text where he uses this word, gungusmos. What is he referring to? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us. What are these things? He's talking about Old Testament Israel. He's talking about being baptized into Moses, being baptized in the cloud and the sea, being immersed into the fellowship of Old Testament Israel, eating the same spiritual food, drinking the same spiritual drink. And then it says this. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. What does laid low mean? Or killed. Now, these things, verse 6, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Interesting. What were they craving? Do you remember? What did they want more than anything? What were they grumbling about? Food, right? Oh, if only we had died in, in Egypt where we had our fill, filet mignon every day. It was free. This is, remember we talk a lot, sin makes you stupid. This is how stupid sin makes you. Slaves in Egypt thought that they were getting free food. Slaves who are owned, who cannot do anything on their own willpower, who are told what to do every second of every day, thought, oh, I'm getting free food. Uh, Sin makes you stupid. 
And they said, oh, all we want is food. We don't have food. God gave them manna. He was gracious. All we want is food. What did they want? They wanted food. And what does Jesus, what does the Holy Spirit say that that is? Craving evil things. Is the food evil? No, food is not evil. Food on its own by itself is amoral. It doesn't have any moral um, intrinsic value to it. What you do with food does. But food itself is not evil. What is evil about them craving that food is that God said, no, I will provide for your needs. And it's not now. It's not this way. And they said, we don't want what you have for us, God. We want what we want. They're craving evil. Do not be as the idolaters, verse 7, as some were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor, verse 10, grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's the only other time Paul uses that word grumble. Where is he getting it from? What is he talking about? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 16, Let's do a little, little history lesson in Exodus chapter 16, and we'll move th- through this quickly. But Exodus chapter 16 will detail for us the account that Paul is referring to. Another verse I would encourage you to write down and look, look up on your own time is Psalm 106, verse 24, where God says through the psalmist that the people of Israel grumbled, and because of that, God did not let them enter their rest. What's happening? It's... Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Old Testament translated in Greek, the Septuagint, we find the exact same Greek word, gungusmos, in this setting as we do in Philippians. Grumbling, speaking out with frustration and anger and displeasure. Oh, I want this another way. And they spoke out and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 3, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And Moses said, Through the Lord, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out. And gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he says this, In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against him. The Israelites said, Moses, Aaron, what are you doing? Why did you bring us out here? And God says, you're not grumbling against Moses and Aaron. You're grumbling against me. Note, all of our grumbling is speaking out against God himself. It's speaking out against God himself. He, con- he continues in verse 8. Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you the meat to eat in the evening, the bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you were grumbling against him and what are we? Your grumblings aren't against us. They're against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. He listens. And he graciously gives, even in the midst of their sin. What do we typically grumble against? We typically grumble against two things, circumstances and people. 
Here, the Old Testament Israelites are grumbling against their circumstances or about their circumstances. They're grumbling against God saying, these circumstances aren't good. And in our grumbling against our circumstances, we are grumbling against the sovereignty of God. Turn to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. After Jeremiah, um, written by Jeremiah, a little book called Lamentations. And look at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 through 40. Specifically verse 39, but start in verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So what circumstances are you going through that God doesn't know about that he didn't ordain to begin with? God commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his what? In view of his sins, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return, repent to the Lord. What is this verse saying? Well, number one, Grumbling is clearly forbidden in Scripture in so many other places, but the motivation for why it's forbidden in Scripture is found here in Lamentations chapter 3. When the writer of Lamentations, when Jeremiah cries out, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? He's saying, don't complain against God because you are always and will always be getting better than you deserve. That is a very instructive understanding or helpful understanding of how bad hell is. Because life is very challenging. And there are depressing circumstances and sufferings and trials that I would never wish upon my worst enemy. And yet God says, those trials in this life are nothing compared to the suffering you will have for your sins in hell if you do not believe. Why should any man complain against God? Because you're always getting more, better than you deserve. That's the logic here in Lamentations chapter 3. We should not have anything to complain about in view of what we truly deserve. So, back to the logic in Philippians chapter 2. If we consider ourselves more highly than we ought to, then we will think we deserve more than we should. And so if we don't get what we think we deserve because we are setting ourselves more highly than we should, then we start to grumble. We grumble only when we start to think, that shouldn't be happening to me because of who I am. I'm better than this. I'm higher than this. I don't deserve this. That's why Paul says, oh, if you are not selflessly serving kicking against vainglory and empty conceit. If you are not doing that, you will grumble. Because you're going to think, why doesn't everybody love me like I love me? Why doesn't everybody serve me? I'm better than this. No. Ultimately, when we complain, when we grumble, we become God's judge. And we say, I've got a better plan than you do. If only I could rule the world. How does God respond to grumbling? For the sake of time, we won't turn there, but Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 through 32, he kills grumblers, ultimately. He kills them. Not only does he kill them by the sword, not only does he kill them in the wilderness, not only does he reject them from entering the promised land, 
He also uh, does this amazing thing. Uh, truly, the, the definition of the word awesome is used for this particular event, and we'll look at it later. Um, he opens the world up and then crushes it down on top of people. He kills people. The world does kind of like a Pac-Man thing on grumblers and eats them and kills them. How does God respond to grumbling? He says that he hates it because grumbling is sin, and specifically sin is cosmic treason, saying, I wish you were off the throne, God. You're not doing the best of jobs here. I've got a better plan. That's grumbling. Back in Philippians chapter 2, what is disputing? My Bible says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some of your translations might say arguing, and that's a great, helpful word because The idea of disputing is to argue, not with each other, but to argue with God. The Greek word for disputing is a word that will sound familiar to you. It is dialogismos. What word is in there? Dialogue, right? Dialogue. To dispute is to dialogue, and this has a negative connotation, obviously. It's to dialogue with God saying, you didn't get this one right. And you're arguing with him saying, I've got a better plan. You shouldn't have done this. You should have done this. I have a better idea in mind. Our definition for grumbling is muttering in a low voice. It's a sign of displeasure. Maybe you're speaking to others. Maybe you're just speaking to yourself. Our definition for disputing is a mental dialogue that calls God into question. A mental dialogue that calls God into question. I think Jonah is the best example of disputing. Mental dialogue or a verbal dialogue sometimes with God. Jonah is a verbal dialogue. God, should I really go to Nineveh? I think you don't understand how bad that city is. I'm not going to go. Oh, okay. You're going to make me go through this fish. I repent. I get there. Um, God, you're not right in your assessment that these people will repent. Do you see how wicked they are, how evil they are? Mm, You're not right. Okay, they repented. You're right. Um, God, before they repent, after I've done my job in preaching, this was a stupid idea, God. This was absolutely foolish. Oh, and you realize it, God. Do you remember what Jonah thinks God sends to ask forgiveness of Jonah? What does he send? He sends that plant to cover him and shade him when the sun's bearing down. And Jonah says, oh, God, you finally figured it out. You knew that you were wrong all along and I was right. Thank you for sending this. This appeases my anger. Thank you. And then he gets very angry when the worms come and eat the plant. What a perfect picture of dialogue. He he is dialoguing. God, you've got this wrong. Wrong city. Wrong person. Wrong people. Can't repent. You got this all wrong. And ultimately, who had it all wrong? Jonah had it all wrong. Also, Nebuchadnezzar is a great example. I would encourage you to read Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. Nebuchadnezzar, once his reason comes back to him at the end of Daniel 4, after he he has been rejecting God, he says these words, No one can truly say to you, what have you done? Nobody can really say that to you. You're the God of the universe. So anybody who says, what have you done? They're disputing. They're dialoguing against God. And Numbers chapter 26, you can write it down. Numbers 26, 9 through 10 is when the earth plays a little Pac-Man on people swallows up those, the Bible says specifically, contended with God. Remember when God contends with Job and says, gird up your loins, face me as a man. 
God can do that with anybody he wants to do that with. Nobody should ever do that with God. God, gird up your loins. Face me like a man. Do you really know what you're doing? That's disputing. So, to summarize here, grumbling is being dissatisfied and discontent with your circumstances. Disputing is to direct that dissatisfaction against God by calling him into question. Grumbling is a more emotional response to bad circumstances or difficult things. Disputing is a more intellectual response to bad circumstances and suffering. So in the time that we have remaining, what's the opposite? Paul says, do nothing at all or do all things without. What's the opposite of grumbling? It's joyful contentment. The opposite of displeasure in your circumstances is joyful contentment. And ultimately, again, big picture of the book, that's where we're going. That's where Paul's going to go in the letter. Don't grumble and let me be an example to you of not grumbling. I'm in jail and that's okay. People are speaking out against me. They're preaching out against me. That's okay. As long as Jesus is preached, I'm okay. My head might be chopped off and he's going to say, I'll rejoice. I'll be with Jesus. I'm fine. It's game. And he will ultimately say, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I don't grumble. I've learned to be content. Oh, that we we would be like Paul. The opposite of grumbling is joyful contentment. It's sweet contentment in Jesus. And what happens when you are sweetly content and joyfully content in Jesus? Verse 15 happens. You are a light. You appear as a light in the world. Reminds us of Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. You are light in the world. You are to be a light in the world. You are salt and light. And I don't think that that should be taken out of context. What was spoken right before you are the light of the world? Blessed are those when they're persecuted and reviled and everybody says all kinds of evil things against you and you rejoice. First Peter says we need to be able to give the hope that is within us. Nobody asks about the hope that's in you when things are going well, right? He says, man, everything seems to be going well. How can you possibly live in these circumstances? Paul has in mind here trials, suffering, circumstances that are awful. And he says, if you suffer well, if you suffer the way Paul did by saying, death is gain. What can you do to me? I love Jesus. I want more of him. So death is gain. That is the way that you show forth the infinite value of Jesus. That's the way you can say to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Paul will be the example for us next week as we look at the three motivations for why we should not grumble and dispute in these verses. Externally, we see God commands it. God says you shouldn't. And God punishes those who are grumbling and disputing. But this is what I want to ask. What are you most prone to grumble about? Go home, eat lunch with some families, go home with your family, go home with your friends. And ask each other, what do you usually grumble about? Sometimes it's big things. Sometimes it's really silly things. It was really, really windy on Thursday and Friday. And I grumbled. (laughs) Over wind. Over wind. It's not a tornado wind. It's just wind wind. And I'm grumbling. Sometimes it's over big things. What do you normally call into question with God? What do you normally say, I think you might have gotten this wrong? What promises in Scripture 
can encourage each other's hearts. Oh, God is good. Let's trust him. Let's follow him. Ultimately, the bottom line is grumblers don't make, look, make Jesus look great. They don't shine forth Jesus as great because everybody in the world grumbles. You're not a testimony to Jesus as a grumbler. But oh, if you go through difficult circumstances and you say, oh, I have joy, unspeakable. And you can't take that away because my joy is steadfastly rooted in Jesus. And he's unchanging. And he's working for my joy. That is when people will ask, how can you say that? What hope do you have? All of life is going so poorly. And you're still joyful. Where is your hope? My hope is to live as Christ and to die as King. Father, I thank you for these verses that so clearly present to us not only a command, but also the reason behind it. In Paul's reasoning, in his logic, we do not want to show Christ forth as pretty good, but could be doing a better job. We want to show Christ forth as all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful, everything we need. We do not have lack or want for anything because we have Jesus. So may we walk with the Lord. May we trust Him. May we obey Him. And may we truly be joyful in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We pray in His name. Amen.